Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that looks at how we can make Vancouver a better urban experience. Together, we'll dive into the workings of our built environment in Vancouver and discuss how we can get involved in our community. Hi, I'm your host, Helen Loy. With each episode, I hope to share with you some insights from my industry experience and explore how we can make Vancouver a more livable and affordable place. I hope that you will learn a little and perhaps be inspired to be more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. Whether it's called social, public, non-market or below market housing, there's no doubt a severe shortage of affordability. While it's a clear issue stemming from our housing crisis, it's less clear what's holding us back from being able to add more affordable housing. If we're going to advocate for more affordability, first we'll need to understand how the current process works or where it's not working. To dive into this topic, I've invited Albert Huang. Albert is a development professional specializing in affordable housing. He brings a lot of real estate development experience, specifically, helping nonprofits build new homes. He's also a passionate advocate for abundant housing. Together, Albert and I are going to look at the process of building new affordable housing. We'll talk about some of the current challenges and discuss ways we can improve. Welcome, Albert, and thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. Just to share a bit about myself, born and raised in Vancouver when I was younger as a family Housing was very topical even for me from a young age because I recall having to move house three times, move basement suite three times in nearly five years. And I feel like it was quite a formative thing because it got me thinking like, why am I losing friends to other communities all the time? And I think a lot of that stayed with me. I knew I was very interested in cities and ended up taking some of the skills I learned from my courses, from my co-op programs and ending up working in a real estate advisory or in planning capacity. I did that for a number of years, and now I work at Terra Housing, where I've been there for eight years working with uh, nonprofit housing clients. And maybe tell us a bit about Abundant Housing as well that you're a director of. Abundant Housing was created about a year before I joined it, when a number of folks that were just noticing that all it took were a half dozen people speaking in favor of or in opposition to rental housing rezonings. That was all it took for it to shift the opinion of city council at the time and started out as just a platform to raise the profile of projects that were vulnerable at the rezoning stage with cities. I want to talk about your work at Terra Housing a bit. And I think that's where our experience overlaps is working on what a lot of people in the industry might call affordable housing. Maybe let's start by defining it. I have had 
projects where, you know, we call it affordable housing, but at the end of the project, you get these rents that, true, they are below market, but for a lot of people, they are still not considered affordable. So how would you describe or explain affordable housing and what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it means something to, to me, means something to the different funders and lenders that I often work with, means different things to different people all across the city. So from the perspective of my day job, there's a lot of overlap between my understanding of it and how some of the usual housing agency funders use it, such as BC Housing and CMHC. So obviously it's going to vary depending on whether we're working on a student housing project, a project for housing seniors, projects where we're providing housing for folks that are homeless or at risk of homelessness. One of the conventions is housing that costs no more than 25 to 30 percent of someone's gross income each month is, is one definition that's commonly used these days, especially by, by the funders CMHC and BC Housing we work with. BC Housing obviously has definitions, the housing income limits, which I think, you know, for a one-bedroom ranges from about 58000 to a three-bedroom, which is $86,000 of income. And then there's further definitions that BC Housing uses called the moderate income limits. And then you've got CMHC who uses definitions like what is the median market rent? What is the average market rent for an apartment in a given community? So these are measures that the housing agencies will use when they're evaluating project proposals. The affordability of a given project is often defined by whoever's going to end up operating it. It could be a community housing group, it could be a nonprofit, a land trust, and what have you. As Albert has just summarized, there are varying definitions of affordable housing determined by the public funding programs available. I asked Albert why he thought it was challenging to define affordable. It can be such a polarizing topic because people are essentially looking at the word affordable and it's like everyone is looking at the same elephant, but from different perspective is, is right. the trite old saying, like everyone's yeah. saying affordable, I, this is the trunk of it. This is affordable means everyone gets a one bedroom apartment for $500 a month. And someone else is saying, you know, why are we focusing on that? We should be talking about three bedroom apartments at $2,000 a month or something like that. And, and like to offer, you know, they're all separate but very related housing crises that we're facing at the same time. And it's good for people to think of it as as a continuum of housing affordability problems. When we're describing housing crises at this point in time, and media likes to cover it as housing crisis because a very professional family with a lawyer and an engineer can't afford anything but a basement suite. I think it kind of speaks to how the affordability crisis has crept up over the decades because once upon a time, it was also already very difficult for immigrant families with two working parents to, to afford a basement suite. And it's just become now something that is much more prominent because of the different socioeconomic groups that it's reaching as a problem. Has that always been the case, that it's kind of just a mishmash of metrics that don't exactly align? And have they kind of been shifting over time based on perhaps the terms that are most favored at the time? Yeah, I think much of it is defined by the funders interested. At some point in the past, there were funders, foundations that were focused 
purely on housing for those that were homeless or at risk of homelessness. So they structured their programs such that they were very heavy on grant, very light on loan, because that's generally what it takes to deliver a project that is studio and one bedrooms at $500, $600 a month versus programs that are more at that Hills level I described earlier, kind of the lower, moderate level of rents. And then you have projects that I think is currently popularly described as kind of moderate incomes for two-person families. I think some of the wording people use may be workforce housing or middle-class housing and all. So it's definitely varied and evolved over time. Albert has highlighted some of the reasons it can be so challenging to create affordable housing. The first reason being that it can mean so many things to different people. The housing continuum, which describes the range of housing options from market to just below market to deeply subsidized, is a good way of thinking about the variety of housing we need in our communities. Even when you look at the below market space on that continuum, we need a variety of housing options at varying costs to suit households with a variety of needs and incomes. And this has resulted in a dizzying array of definitions to which affordable housing funders tie their program requirements. Now, more than ever, we're seeing more focus from all levels of government on affordability. There's a variety of new programs to incentivize below-market homes. And this is a good thing. It means that there's strong political will to address housing and affordability. However, it also means adding more metrics and definitions, furthering the already complicated work for project partners. When you have two, three, sometimes up to five project partners all contributing, this can result in five different application and reporting requirements, resulting in a lot of time and effort. To help us understand the process of these affordable housing projects, I asked Albert to walk us through some of the key steps. You know, starting from day zero of a project, often it starts with an idea, it starts with a site, it starts with an affordability program, it starts with potentially a non-housing portion of a project. I, I find that it's more and more often the case that a lot of the housing work that I do at Terra involves healthcare elements, involves daycare items that are pretty high up there right alongside with housing as being a priority, as being amenities and things and services that people in this city, people in this province need. So if we unpack some of those, it usually starts with a site and kind of speaks to how difficult it is, I think, to find a site that we in partnership with our with the nonprofits we work with make a determination whether it's risky because if there is a site that requires a rezoning, that can take upwards of half a million dollars of costs, like working with architects, working with consultants and engineers to get something ready to a point where it's ready to be submitted to a city for a rezoning. Something that often comes up when we talk about affordable housing is the idea of high land cost and making sure that we need to keep land costs low so that groups like nonprofits or the government or whomever can buy land at a low cost so that they can build affordable housing. And so I want to ask, what percentage of your projects would you say actually require the partners to buy a piece of land in order to make things happen? I would say 
depending on what funding is available like over the years, like it can range anywhere from a third to two thirds of the projects we work on are sites where the land is essentially zero cost, where it comes because the, the nonprofit has owned the site for 30, 40 years already, or it's a site that's being provided by government or something along those lines where the land cost is essentially zero. And even that is scarce because as the decades have passed and Vancouver's kind of grown, the number of sites that are vacant that don't require displacing existing residential tenants are becoming more and more scarce. So it's not something to take for granted that we have vacant land. It's, it's in fact, trending away from that. Okay, so you've got the land, you've got some partners who are coming in willing to see if something can happen, if something is feasible. As you deliver the project and you hire designers and you hire contractors and you have to pay, you know, fees for your permits, is there anything else in that kind of partnership or project team or delivery process that is, quote unquote, affordable? If you look at the same, a same building side by side, one that may be developed and operated and owned by a nonprofit versus one that isn't, generally you're paying the same rates for the architect, for the engineering consultants, you're paying comparable costs for construction. And I believe you've come across this, Helen, where we've had public discussions about housing, making the assertion that a given condo building was built with luxury specifications and, and fittings. And therefore, that's why it costs so much more than nonprofit project. Not found that to be the case. I've kind of compared construction specifications, the the comparable build of a market versus a non-market, non-profit project, and they're, they're quite comparable. What Albert has just summarized is a common misconception about the differences between market and non-market or affordable housing. The reality is, it is just really difficult and expensive to build new homes. New affordable homes cost the same as market residential homes because they are subject to nearly the same costs and fees. Where they differ, and therefore the affordability, is the subsidies and grants from governments, donations such as land from partners, and then possibly some lower cost financing. And whatever those things add up to be, which get contributed at the start of the project, that total in grants and subsidies will determine how affordable it will be from the get-go, and often over time as well. Let's take a moment to clarify what it means to be a nonprofit housing organization. Nonprofit societies have no shareholders, which means that any profit or excess money that is generated are not allocated to shareholders but instead can be used to drive further affordability in existing homes or, over time, to build up a reserve to fund new housing. However, many public funding programs require such profits be reinvested into lowering existing rents, which benefit existing tenants, but erodes the nonprofit's ability to build capacity for creating new homes. It's important to remember that nonprofit housing organizations still pay themselves and their employees for their work. And as you can see, it is often work that is more challenging and more complex than for-profit developments. I asked Albert if different cities treat new nonprofit housing the same as typical for-profit projects. 
Yeah, I I think it varies from municipality to municipality. Some are have created policy that is extremely supportive of NAR market development, where their development charges, their development levies are waived, and the res, the remaining application fees are, I dare say, like quite reasonable. And there are municipalities that offer no consideration for affordable housing non-market projects. Do you have an estimate as to what percentage of a total project cost would be eaten up in fees that go to the city? I think it ranges in terms of the percentage of, of fees that a municipality charges. It can, you know, in some smaller communities or on sites that are already close to existing infrastructure, can be 5% or less of the project cost. There are, however, municipalities particularly if you're working on a market project where the fees do start to approach 20-25% of the cost of your project. So I would suggest like people should kind of think about, you know, are we talking about a site that is former farmland that has no sewers, has no services nearby, has no roads or sidewalks or anything like that. And and so that would result in in higher development charges likely as well as additional offsite servicing costs required by the city versus a site that may be replacing an existing single family house. You're just replacing it with a low rise. Therefore, the development charges, the offsite servicing costs in terms of water, storm drainage and sanitary systems are actually quite reasonable and make sense for cities to take better advantage of the existing infrastructure they have rather than continuing to push uh, housing to the periphery of of our region here because it actually pushes additional costs of infrastructure on those new people having to live further away. Cities not only collect fees from developments, but they also play a role in enforcing regulations that new buildings must comply with. This results in projects requiring a whole team of consultants and engineers in order to produce the drawings and reports to meet such requirements. These would include, for example, architects, landscape architects, mechanical, electrical, and geotechnical engineers, as well as acoustic consultants, envelope and energy consultants, as well as traffic engineers and civil consultants. And that's just a few. On a six-story wood frame project, the list of consultants can be up to 50 different groups. And while this does add a lot of cost, Much of it is important, as you'll hear when Albert and I discuss why design has become more complex, as well as what some of the solutions may be. A building being structurally sound, being seismically safe, being able to uh, keep the people inside safe in the inevitable event that we have our 9.2 earthquake is important. And I think it should be noted that there are a lot of buildings around the world that were built before earthquake seismic structural standards. I have family that lived, lives right even now in Christchurch in New Zealand that can recall like going around the city after the earthquake nearly a decade ago that could see the older parts of the city, buildings that were entirely masonwork and bricks that just did not do well in the earthquake. So you've got consultants like that that think are for the better. I think it's just a matter of finding a way to create some standardization in our housing forms to make it possible so that each new building isn't its own unique design. Like if there were ever a way for BC, for Canada to kind of come up with, you know, six or eight standard building forms that can be repeated and just taken off a shelf 
maybe they're not 100% complete, but maybe they're 70, 80% complete. And then the remaining 20% are things that an architect and engineer just need to do a bit of work to make sure it's appropriate for the site. Like I, I think we might unlock some cost savings, some affordability in the way we need to deliver housing over the next decade. When we look and compare to how things were built and designed in the past, it's 100% definitely for more safety, more indoor occupant comfort. And all of these things are important. And we should be keeping up with innovative ways to design our buildings, especially given the changes through our climate as well. To your latter point about having standard templates that we could just go to, I'm going to respectfully disagree because I don't know how long it would actually take in order to come up with a set of plans that we would all agree with. I'm hoping we could do both, like continue to, to, to work on designs that work on a given site and maybe come up with a template. And I think the, the arc of engineering and building science seems to be that we're trying to do a more thoughtful job of designing things with the safety, say, for instance, since an earthquake, the safety of the occupants in mind, rather than just making sure the building is made out, out of two-pound, two-ton boulders or something like that all the way around. It's often the case that people say, you know, they don't build houses like they used to, but there's a bit of survivorship bias there. And I can attest to this around, around the city. There were often also very poorly built buildings around the city that just frankly didn't survive. So the ones that survive will give people the impression that the old stuff was good and the new stuff is terrible for people. Albert and I have spent a bit of time going over how new affordable housing is built and also why it's been so challenging. We then discussed ways to improve. I asked Albert what the key challenges are when looking at how to expand capacity for building affordable housing in the next 10 to 50 years. That's a big question. I'd say you'd want to look at elected officials that are prepared to come up with models to raise the necessary dollars to deliver affordable and nonprofit projects. I you know, can see even this point in time and in 2023, a lot of funding programs are predicated based on a mix of below market and at market rents. So it's kind of recognizing the fact that in order to provide the volume and the number of, of homes that this country, this province, the city needs at this point in time, it's necessary to leverage dollars both from market sources, from commercial sources, as well as from housing agencies like BC Housing and CMHC. When it comes to city policies, we're finding that it is difficult to find sites that are zoned appropriately for the type of low to mid-rise projects that are kind of the sweet spot at this point in time for nonprofit affordable projects. Sweet spot being something that's, you know, in the order of five, six stories tall, because any taller than six stories is when you are going to have to switch to a non-combustible form of construction, which is usually concrete, which comes with a cost premium. So finding some path for city government, city planning staff to come up with land use, urban land use reform to make that possible is one thing I think government and, and elected officials should consider. There's the notion of land lift, which we discussed before, which I think has been quite a polarizing topic amongst people that are discussing paths to housing affordability. Let's take, for example, a house in East Vancouver that is $1.7 million. And if it is the case that city of Vancouver, for example, chooses to 
upzone it, which is to mean increase the amount of homes allowed on it, that it causes the value as a development site to increase above $1.7 million. That is not necessarily a bad thing, because if you then accompany that upzoning with taxes that essentially reduce the value of it to a builder to below $1.7 million, you'll never turn that house into a four-story low-rise or anything like that. And I'd argue the the most appropriate and relevant and really the number that anyone that cares about affordability should use when thinking about land lift and land value is like how much land cost per unit of housing on that site. Because if we're talking about a $1.7 million single detached house in East Vancouver in Killarney with one household and a basement suite, that's $850,000 of land value per unit versus, you know, if you're able to take that site and it's now a developable site and it's worth, let's call it $3 million, but we're able to put like a low rise project on it with 10 to 12 units so that the land value is essentially a quarter million dollars or $300,000. I'd argue that is what matters most when we're trying to come up with like a mathematical formula for delivering affordability. Thank you. I really appreciated you taking the time to chat. I think that was a lot of information there, hopefully a lot of new information that people previously didn't know about the mysteries of building and delivering affordable housing. Thanks for having me, Alan. As you've heard, it is extremely challenging to add new affordable housing. And as affordability becomes more scarce, Governments are increasingly pressured to take bold action, and rightfully so. The result is a somewhat double-edged sword. Lots more public programs to support building new, non-market housing, but also, with it, a lot of new definitions, metrics, and requirements for such programs. There's a lot we can do to improve. Here are five things I suggest, based on my conversation with Albert Huang, that we can do to make it easier to build affordable homes. Number one, ensure sufficient public funding dedicated to non-market housing. Second, investigate zoning reform. Zoning reform would open up access to large portions of land in existing areas that are amenity rich and close to jobs and likely to require less additional infrastructure costs. This would allow the dollar spent on affordable housing to go much further and have greater impact. Third, is to create a balance between lifting land values and the opportunity to add density. We need to make sure that our policies aren't solely driven by the desire to keep land costs low, because it can be an incentive for much needed new density. This is especially true for nonprofits and government organizations that already own land. Four is to explore standardizing design to help remove some of the complexity in building new homes. Perhaps a Vancouver Special 2.0, but for a four or six story wood frame building. And then finally is to provide more trust and therefore more agency to our existing affordable housing sector. There are so many nonprofit housing organizations doing really great work, and we should acknowledge that if we are to continue expanding capacity. Navigating the processes for new housing can be very challenging, and this is certainly true when building non-market homes. And while there's a lot of political will to address the lack of affordability, 
there is so much more we can do to ensure that our subsidies and resources are efficiently used so that they can have the most impact. On our next development, we're going to explore the relationship between current residents and the pressures of much needed new density. We'll look at what we can do to limit displacement and how zoning not only dictates what we can build in the future, but also how it impacts existing residents. You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loy. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Aaron Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com.